everyone and thanks for joining us. It's great to have you along for another edition of the podcast. This month we have a real treat in store. We're bringing you two parts to this month's podcast and when I tell you who we're talking to it will become obvious why. This month's guest has literally done it all. He's become a spokesman for our sport and was kind enough to sit down for a good 90-minute chat. So to do all that justice, this month's podcast comes in a bumper two-part edition. So who is he? Well, Kenny Reid has skippered two America's Cup teams under the watchful eye of Cup legend Dennis Connor. He led two Volvo Ocean Race campaigns and is more often than not at the forefront and the wheel of the world's coolest race bows. You'll recognize his easygoing, soft American accent for sure. He was a co-commentator in the last two cups and on top of all that is president of North Sales. I gave him the name strap once of the busiest man in sailing and I've no doubt it still stands. But more than his CV, he's a spokesman, a voice of sense and reason He has massive passion for the sport still and a true understanding of the industry. I've interviewed him more times than either of us can remember. And as I'm sure you'll hear, we're great friends. We sat down together after a hectic day at the World Yacht Racing Forum in Spain. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Kenny Reid. My dad was in the home delivery milk business. It is kind of a a Cinderella story. I hated the thought of losing. Winning was everything. He said, get out there and and don't look back and there's a job here for you when you're done. Kenny Reid, top of the list since we started making the podcast. It's great to finally get together. You've always been top of our list on the interview front. You're guaranteed to deliver the golden soundbite. This though, Kenny, is a bit different. It's a much longer chat. It's not about the short soundbite. Is it slightly scary? Yes, very scary. <laughs> it's uh, nice to be on the top of your list, but let's see how this goes, and then you can you can judge whether that's a good call or not. I, I've not seen you look quite so nervous yeah, yeah, yeah. before, before <laughs> any s- kind of interview. You scare me, first of all. <laughs> you, you frighten me. We got a we got a beer. You can you okay, can chill out. Exactly. I mean, just recently, I did some media training with some high level American sailors, and when I asked them who they thought was you know top drawer communicators, they thought you were on a different level. I mean, is it something that you've always been comfortable with? Oh, uh, comfortable is probably the wrong word. Um, I think the difference is that I was thrown in front of, I guess, a, an audience pretty early on. So right out of college, uh, when I got my first job in the sailmaking world, it was you know this is the this is before the days of pro sailing. Really, you, you went and worked for a sailmaker or a mass maker, or a boat builder, and there was a lot in the area around Newport. So that's how I ended up in Newport. And um, part of the job was you had to be an opinion leader. And actually, my first boss, Bill Shore, he would talk about it as such. It was you had to be an opinion, an opinion leader. So you couldn't be shy 
on getting in front of an audience. And I remember the first, I think I remember the first J24 clinic I ever taught. And I sat in front of a crowd of, uh, I think it was couples in somebody's living room in their house. I think it was Hyannis, Massachusetts. And I bored these people to tears for, I, I went through every nuance of the J24 for an hour, maybe two hours of people were leaving. I think women were crying. I mean, it was, it, it was, uh, it was a phenomenally boring night. But you know what? Like anything in life, you just keep learning. Um, I, I learned how to, I learned how to get comfortable in front of people. And, the, and that's, I think that's the key to anything. We're here at the moment in Bobawa. It's just, it's the end of the um, yacht racing forum. And I mean, I get the sense that you're the spokesman, whatever it is in the sport, you're kind of go-to spokesman. I mean, do you feel like, like you're always on? Well, yeah, that's actually a very good question. It, you, ha you have to be on, first of all. I've learned you have to also be careful what you say because uh, if, if you are seen as an opinion leader, what you say, especially in today's day and age, is going to have wings quite quickly. So, and that's not natural for me. I, I, I tend to call a spade a spade, I guess. And I have, I've had to learn to kind of temper enthusiasm at times. And, and yeah, like I said, that's, that's certainly not natural. But uh, I think that the, the day that people stop asking you questions is the day you're not relevant and it's time to go out to pasture and, 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 and off you go and you get your multi-hull and go sail around the world, you know, it, it, it's, and that, by the way, cruise around the world, not race around the world, cruise <laughs> around the world and, and, and maybe there's still some relevance to it, so that's a good sign. Today, Kenny, we've been talking actually about the pathways for youth, youth retention in our sport. There's been a lot of discussion. For the young Ken Reed, was sailing always on the agenda? I hated sailing. I didn't dislike it. I, was, I hated it and I was scared of it uh, as a kid. And I will never forget the day that my, um, it was, I was probably 11 years old, maybe 10 years old. And I was two years into, I grew up, I grew up at Barrington Yacht Club in Barrington, Rhode Island on Narragansett Bay, very close to where I live now. And... Uh, and my, I think my mother treated it. We were, a ho we were a hockey family in the winter, an ice hockey family, and a, and a sailing family in the summer. We had a 30-foot cruising boat that we went out on all the time. And for some reason, things started spooking me. And I, I, I was really, I, be, I was very nervous on the water. Even on, on our sailboat, it was a Pearson Wander. And we'd tow around a sunfish every weekend. And my little brother and myself and, and my parents. And... And I, I said, listen, I'm out. I, I don't, I, I don't want to do this sailing anymore. I remember faking that I was seasick on a Blue Jay in the middle of the Barrington River. I mean, who's seasick on a Blue Jay in the middle of the Barrington River? But that was me. I, I, was, I got really nervous. And, and uh, my father said, my father sat me down actually on, on their bed upstairs and said, you're going to give me a half a summer, a, a half a summer. This is it. If you don't like it after a half a summer, you, they could sign up, I guess, for two halves of a summer. And you, you give me a half a summer, and if you still don't like it, you don't have to do it again. And 
since then, he's told me that was complete crap, by the way. He was forcing me to do it for the rest of my life. But uh, was, it, was there a moment, do you remember, I think, oh yeah, it's not so bad after all. No, there was, I met a guy named Al Gerard, and Al Gerard is famous because I've told this thing, this story many a time, but Al Gerard and I played hockey together. And I was in a foreign, I, I lived in Seekonk, Massachusetts. I played hockey in Providence, and, and we sailed in Barrington, and I didn't know anybody. So it was, if the, the lesson learned there was, if there's an outsider in your youth sailing program, you have to, as a as a, an adult, you have to make it inclusive for them, or they're not going. There, there's cliques of kids all over the place. Every kid went to Barrington Public Schools or, or uh, you know, area public schools. I literally knew nobody, and nobody wanted to know me because I was the outsider, and I I just didn't like it because I didn't have any friends and. It all starts off with friendships and relationships. Well, really, our whole industry is about relationships. But I met a kid that all of a sudden a kid came from East Providence, another town, and I played hockey with him. He said, hey, I, you know, I think he said, I smacked you with my stick last year. I, I remember tripping you last year. You know, it started off this friendship. And for the next two years, we sailed sunfish doubles together. And all of a sudden, the, the instructors were like, holy crap, where did this kid come from? He was the one that was seasick in a Blue Jay last year and he hasn't lost a race all summer. And, and he and I just became buddies and the rest is history. We just enjoyed it from then on. And, and relationships, make sure kids are comfortable in their surroundings and they'll probably surprise you. You know, it's all very Hollywood to us Brits, but you are an, an all-American College. I'm not entirely sure what that is, but was that kind of the moment where you thought, actually, you know, I kind of rock at this? Yeah, well, not. Um, I got recruited by three universities to go for sailing. None of them, of course, offered a scholarship, but th that was before the days that I think they offered scholarships. And I went to Boston University, and it was a perfect fit. A coach named Skip White. Um, was a perfect fit, and I, I remember I, I didn't I wasn't good enough to make the varsity team right away. So as a freshman, I said a lot of freshman events, but the first day of practice, um, Skip was kind of curious as to what he had, and so because I wasn't you know I, I never traveled outside Rhode Island. I I wasn't the 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 youth world champion or and next year Pete Melvin came to you know. Pete Melvin, as a younger person, was my idol. He had won everything, you know, as, as a kid. But we didn't, you know, we, I didn't know anything outside of Narragansett Bay. And, and Skip put the, the team captain to crew for me the first day of practice at BU. And we won the first race against all the varsity guys. And, and, the, and it was a guy named Brad White. Again, I'll never forget the day. And he turned around and he said, hey, you know what? If you bust your butt in this, you're pretty good you could be an All-American by the time you're a senior. And I just remember saying, screw that. I'm going to be an All-American by the time I'm a sophomore. And sure, and so we won the freshman New Englands. And it just, everything is a building block. So you win this and it, okay, what's the next step? And what's the next step? And what's the next step? And sophomore year, I was just good enough to be an All-American. And junior year, our team blossomed and we won almost every national championship there was and was college sale of the year. And college sale of the year is a big deal. You know, Terry and I think Gary Jobson still tells everybody he was two-time college sale of the year. And that's tough. That's hard to be. Um, I mean, if you're not American, you don't, yeah, I you know, don't but get it. What, what is it? And why, it was, you know, why the, is it such a big deal? I think there's 200 and something sailing teams and universities in, in the United States. At least there was at the time. 
and you're voted as the best sailor in the country, you know, in, in university. And, and at the time, again, there was no pro sailing and everybody went to college and that, the, the college teams were the feeding ground to the, to the future of the industry. And then as that turned out into pro sailing at the same time. So, um, yeah, it was a big deal. And then you get recruited out of college. And before you know it, the, the boat builder, like I said before, the boat builders, the mass makers, the sail makers, they're recruiting you. And I went to work for Shore Sales in Newport. And um, I remember sitting down with Bill and Doug Shore the first day. And I'm like, what's my job? And they said, you just go win everything and we'll sell sales. We'll teach you how to sell sales. And it's pretty much to, to plan. That's exactly what, how it worked. It was great. What it, it, it is kind of a... A Cinderella story, actually. I was not the the big recruit. Seekonks, you know, my dad was in the home delivery milk business. You know, we were, we were, you know, good, solid, hard working middle class family. And um, my mother was the athlete in the family. She was, uh, uh, she's actually in the Connecticut College Athletic Hall of Fame. And and she, you know, so. In what sport? In all, God, I think she she played four sports. She's softball field hockey, basketball, and I think, you know, I went to her induction and they might have said sailing and my brother and I raised our hand and called BS to that because she hated sailing. (laughs) (laughs) I forget what the fourth was, but she, she, yeah, she was a four, she was a four letter award winner in a three letter season. And that's, that's why she was in the hall of fame there. It was kind of interesting. What did she teach you about sport? What did you take away from So she was the super competitive one. My father was maybe the more cerebral one. Um, my father was the sailor in the family and a natural. He, he's clearly a natural sailor. Anybody who ever sailed with him was a natural sailor. My mother always claimed that I, I learned to sail in the womb because she would go out. My dad had an S-boat, a Harishoff S-boat, a wooden boat, kind of a before their time in a, in a oh, bendy mast. Exactly. And... Uh, He's a natural sailor and still sails to today, you know, 80, he just had his, I think it's his 85th birthday. And uh, my mother, unfortunately, um, passed away just before my first America's Cup. So she never really got to see kind of the crazy times. Um, she never saw the 2000 Cup in, in New Zealand, it really tragic and teaches us all to watch your health and don't smoke cigarettes. That's That's my... That's my words of the day for anybody out there listening. That's a big lesson. Yeah. You were young, straight out of college, you were working, as was the way, I guess, a lot of young talent then associated with a sail loft. Could you, could you make sails? I can't actually see you cutting corner patches. Well, uh, the deal was at Shore Sails that first summer in, in Newport. I'm going to give, I'm going to ask you a question. What happened in Newport that was reasonably significant in 1983? Oh, we lost the cup. That was my first summer in Newport. And so I, I was in there. If I was, you know, I sailed every weekend and, and almost, I crewed for Bill Shore in the Lightning and then he crewed for me in the J24. And there was a couple of years there where we never lost a regatta. We didn't lose a regatta in, in much those days. Because we were, in essence, we were kind of pro sailors before there were pro sailors. You know, we were getting paid a salary for, for selling sales, but uh, let's not mince words. We were pro sailors, and and uh, and yeah. So the, I during the week, I'm cutting lightning jibs and sticking them together, and. There's always that phrase of never do a bad job well. Well, 
I didn't realize I was living by that, but I was a terrible sailmaker. I, because I was thinking about, you know, we could have we leave out that guy at the weather mark as I'm cutting out some poor person's lightning jib and probably putting the broadseep on backwards or something like that. So I was not the best uh, worker, but no, no, we had to learn every part of it. And we were on the handwork bench and I never told anybody after I stopped doing that that I knew how to run a sewing machine, but I even knew how to run a sewing machine and... Uh, you know, it was Friday afternoon sale made by Kenny Reed. Oh boy, it's probably not going to be fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you listened to Paul Kehart's uh, podcast, but he said exactly the same thing. He spent he spent a week cutting corner patches really badly yeah. and made sure he wasn't did he do it to on do it again. Did he do it on purpose? <laughs> he did, yeah. See, I wasn't even smart enough not to do it on purpose. I was just, my mind was always somewhere else. I mean, looking back, even then at your successes, Kenny, I mean, you had range I guess whatever it was, you seemed to deliver. You know, what was your approach, I guess, when you, know, you stepped on a, a boat for the first time? I mean, how could, you, how could you adapt, I guess, your winning knowledge to whatever boat it was? Uh, I, I was a pretty intense dude back at the time. Um, I, I think I remember the regatta where, um, and this is, I've, I've heard the phrase many times since, but I'm a pure believer in... Uh, do you remember the day where winning wasn't as important as not losing? And that happened for me pretty early. I remember a, a J24 North Americans, I think we came in second or third at the end and just screwed it up. And I was so mad. And, and all of a sudden, I was mad at myself. And I, I was just intense. I just, from then on, I, I, I hated the thought of losing. I didn't care about getting up on stage and getting a trophy. In fact, you know, I, I might have four or five trophies out total in my, in my house. But I just, the thought of, of losing just drove me. Like, and, and well, probably still there. If my friends are listening to this, who I sold with this past summer, they're probably saying the same thing. It's like, well, nothing much has changed. I think a lot has changed. I think I've actually chilled out quite a bit um, over the past several years. And, but uh, at the time, I, I, I don't care if I was beer can racing. Uh, I don't care if I was tr- you know, sailing a buddy in a laser across the harbor. I don't care if we were playing tillywinks or shooting, playing horse, playing basketball, whatever it was. Just losing was just simply not an option. And, um, and that, was, it was, that was the driving force. It's really that simple. It's funny, isn't it? Because now you're—I mean—you're completely Mr. Nice Guy. I guess in your, <laughs> I guess in your job, know. you know, you kind of have to be you're president of North Sales. Everyone knows who you are. Um, you know, you kind of you kind of have to be popular. But if I if I'd asked people back then, how would they have summed up Kenny Reid? Well, when I when I meet often still, especially in the state, oh no, all over. I just met this guy in, from Sweden, and he said, "Ah, oh, we sailed J24s against you all the time," and and whenever that happens, my first my first comment is, "I'm so sorry." You know, <laughs> whatever I said to you at the time, it was delusional. Yeah, it, it was intense, um, and it was in- And then and then it became intense for a commercial reason because uh, Dan Neri, who I still work with today, um, you know, I'm the president of North Sales, and he's the CEO of North Sales, and we work together since 1986. I think, um, 
you know, it, it became you had to win to sell sales, and sell sales meant you could pay the mortgage, and paying the mortgage meant you could pay the debt, and you know, and, and it all meant that you could pay all your friends to continue to work for you. So, you know, it just it it became more than just what sale making did, and owning a business at such a young age did was turn it from fun to reality. And reality was. We, we, could, we could show you, if I won the J24 Worlds, it was a half a million dollars more sales. And for a small company, a half a million more dollars more sales in the J24 class that next year, was, that was life as we know it. So it, it became a commercial reality at the same time. I mean, pressure. It's hard for enough young, on the race yeah, course, isn't it? No, no, no. <laughs> and it, it was. But you know, we, he and I would talk about it all the time. It's like coming in second was... you're pissing away 500 grand in a heartbeat if you come in second. It was winning was everything. And uh, yeah, it, it takes a toll. By 96, I guess you've been bought by North Sales. The cup legend Tom Widden was at the helm. What was it like at North back then? <laughs> it was fun. And, and that was an interesting time because we had owned the company for 10 years, Dan and I, and we had built it up to a decent size, you know, still kind of a mid-sized loft, but we were specialists. And as, as Tom said, the first time Tom and I sat down, we, and, and by the way, we had gone from shore sales to Sobstad sales. So we, we had changed licenses. We had, you know, we had to deal with real world business dealings and learned a ton along the way. And we were successful for, for a couple of young kids. We were successful. And Tom finally said, you guys are paying the ass. I think that was his exact quote the first time we met. You're paying the ass, and it's time you come work for us. And, you know, and I always tell the story that he, he didn't, I don't think to this day Tom knows, but Dan and I had already decided 3DL was just coming out at the time. And we decided, and, and we were working, we were licensing the Sobstad name. And Sobstad had Genesis. That was their laminate, their, their skinned you know, uh, thread laminate. And um, it wasn't working. It wasn't, uh, Dan was tired because we were working like dogs. And I was tired. And I'm like, you know, the 3DL is going to destroy our business if we're not careful. And um, he's like, listen, I'm tired too. And it turns out we were sitting down with Widden a week later. And a month after that, the deal is done. And we work for North Sales. And it was just... It's almost like the, it was a chain of events that was meant to happen. And uh, 3DL gave us the nudge that we needed. That was, that, that really, that was the evolution in sales that kind of changed sailing forever. I'm curious about your professional life at North Sales. A few years back, we filmed A Week in the Life of Kenny Reed, and it was exhausting. So I do have a sense, I guess, of what you do, but perhaps just give us an idea what do you do if you're the president of North Sales? Well, it's evolved for sure. I mean, when he and I started off, when Dan and I went to work for uh, North, it's kind of in a position we're in right now, actually. Jay Hansen and Tom and, and Gary Wiseman, and it was kind of the North American um, group of sale offs, the North American manufacturing, which was Nevada and 3DL, and then it was the rest of the world that was all licensed at the time. So it was very different. Uh, than it is today. And we went to work for North America, and they wanted to get some youth into what they called the M group, their management group. And essentially, it was an internal board of directors for North Sales. And 
so we, they literally threw us in the fire. They're like, we got two young kids that we think might be good. Um, let's, let's see what they got. And of course, there was still a lot of sailing, but there was even more exposure to, you know, Jay Hansen and Tom and, and Gary and Vince Brune and kind of that, the, the generation that they weren't, they weren't aging out at the time, but they were, you know, they, they realized, they were smart enough to realize we got to start bringing in some new blood. Just as we are today, by the way, as we're working really hard at today to do the same thing. Because I think they did a pretty decent job. Um, listen, that job evolved like crazy. Tom, Tom, was, Tom is the avid uh, kick-out-of-the-nest guy. He, he kept saying, go do stuff. He, he was the guy who promoted doing America's Cups and promoted doing Volvo races. Because he, he said, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to learn from it. You're going to use the product. You're going to know the people, the, the sailing sport and the sailing industry. Get out there and, and don't look back and there's a job here for you when, you, when you're done. And he stood by that the whole, the whole way. Um, I did just that. I, 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 I would go take, take bites at the big time sailing apple and I think it was really beneficial. So now as my job has moved on, as I, as I wound down my professional sailing life and into the commercial sailing life, it's more towards... North Technology Group now, and you know, with Peter Dubins as the as our new as our new chairman, and you know, just kind of adapting to how uh, their company likes to see our company uh, evolve. Uh, I guess that's the right word. But at the same time, it's a different it's a different company. Whereas I have to do much more on the NTG side. I, I you know I, I deal with the Southern Spars quite a bit. Not as much with Hall Spars. We've done recent project with Future Fibers. Um, the kite company is coming along. Uh, you know, we have all kinds of stuff going on. So every day, the fun part of my job is, long answer, is every day is different still. And that's what keeps me enjoying to go to work every day, whether it's here in Spain or in Newport or wherever it may be. And it's pretty cool. Literally, an hour later, Dennis called up and said, well, guess what? You just got to raise. You're the skipper. Every minute, there was something going on in his brain that nobody could ever have predicted. It was phenomenal. So Kenny, head of North Sales, but also out there competing. As we've heard, it's been a great journey. In the industry, I can't help but wonder, are sales figures still very much dependent on race wins? No question. Especially in today's day and age of social media, where it's not just a race win, it's a, it's a race day sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a perception of reality, it's, a, it's some person's opinion as to what actually went on versus what may have gone on. I think it's a far more complicated uh, working environment today than it was back then. And you got to be sharp and you got to be thinking ahead and you got to be three steps ahead. If you're not, you're probably in, in trouble in today's, in today's world. So, it's hard. I think it's harder. For sure to do business today is much, much harder. When we spent that week with you, Kenny, we came to, we came to Minden. It was pretty impressive, you know, high-tech robotics. and I mean, I've seen pictures, but to see it actually in action was, was quite something. And I remember then when we interviewed you, you said you'd, you'd nearly made the million-dollar sale. I mean, that was a few years ago. Have you made the million-dollar sale yet? <laughs> uh, not quite. We're, we're actually, we might be quoting on one right now as we speak. Um, yeah, it's, 
yeah, not just has has my job or the world changed uh, so dramatically, but the, the whenever anybody is considering 3DI versus a, a, a competitor's product, I, I, I just look at them and say, I'm gonna, I want to fly it a Minden. And then you make a decision. You, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe what a sale is today. Because if you just look at what goes up on your mass and boom, you, you just ain't giving it credit. And it's pretty... It's nice to be, it's nice to be on the team with 3DI. That's uh, we, a lot of us say that a lot of the times. It, it has made selling easier for us. But you know what? What's the next 3DI? What's the next big innovation? And uh, Peter Dubin's every board meeting, Peter Dubin's says, "Kenny, what's next? Have you figured it out yet?" And it's uh, <laughs> he's right. Uh, the answer is we haven't. But the the answer is also. There's a lot of smart people working on it. The million dollar sale. <laughs> I want to sail on that boat. Yeah, me too. Well, I'm not sure I do. It's going to be scary as hell. <laughs> Kenny, let's go back a bit, back to your sailing career. 1999, the story goes that the phone rang and America's Cup legend Dennis Connor was on the other end. It was a real life-changing moment, but you didn't think it was genuine, did you? No, I thought it was my friend Brad Dimio uh, crank calling me. He, he was pretty good. I don't know if he would ever consider himself pretty good at impressions, but he, uh, we talked, you know, one of my very better friends in the world, and <laughs> he, uh, I thought he was just taking the piss out of me, and, you know, this is Dennis Connor. How you, you know, how you doing? Uh, I, I'd like to meet you. I'm like, yeah, shut the bleep up. Yeah, it was a moment, and it was a moment that was completely unexpected, and he said, I'm in town, I, I want to talk to you. And actually, er, the, I think Urban Legend doesn't realize this side of it, but he said, I got this guy named Chris Dixon who's going to skipper my Whitbread boat, and I've already talked to him, and he's going to skipper my next cup. It's not going to be a high-budget cup in 2000, uh, but, but he's going to skipper it, and I want you to be his tactician. And this is the day, that, so this is, this is the beginning of a bigger story, but this is when a person in charge d- literally picked and choosed all kinds of different factions and hoped that it would all melt together perfectly. So I had never met, actually I had met Chris Dixon once, um, but he was picking Chris Dixon's tactician. Chris probably doesn't even know this story. And, uh, and said, would you be interested? I said, well, I learned a long time ago, never say no to anything. So I said, yeah, I'd be really interested. And it wasn't but three, four weeks, weeks later that Chris and Dennis had a falling out in the middle of the Whitbread race. And uh, Chris got fired and he left. And literally an hour later, literally an hour later, Dennis called up and said, well, guess what? You just got a raise. You're the skipper. And uh, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, you're, you're going to be the skipper of my next boat, and I need you to be in San Diego and, you know, by tomorrow afternoon or something like that. I'm like, this is unreal. And I called Whitten, and he's like, that's our boy Dennis. I said, what do you think I should do? He goes, you should go out to San Diego and figure out what the heck he's talking about. And he and Billy Trenkel, who just got put into the America's Cup Hall of Fame, and he and Billy and I sat down, and we started to figure out a plan. But to say I had anything to do with the plan is pretty unrealistic. Um, Bill, it was. It was the day Billy and Dennis were in charge, and we were the pieces of their grand scheme puzzle. And uh, 
Yeah, that led to a phenomenal America's Cup campaign. I mean, you don't say no in that in those days. You don't say no today. We went to a, we went to a it, diner. Like? We went to a diner when he asked me. We went to a diner, a tiny little diner right up the street from our loft in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, and uh, we walked in. And you know, Dennis literally is bigger than life. And as soon as we walked in, without a word spoken, oh, this is at twelve twenty in the afternoon. A woman reaches up behind a bunch of coffee mugs and grabs a bottle of rum for up on this shelf right above the kitchen, pulls it down, f- fills a coffee mug full of uh, half full of rum and fills it half full of Diet Coke. And uh, we, he's like, you want one? I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And that was the beginning of six years of pure craziness, craziness I would never. And then, and then the next thing we did was we drove down the street to the laser uh, to the Sunfish Laser Factory, and he, on the spot he bought a laser because he had met a kid in the Caribbean that couldn't afford a laser, and he thought he had a future of being a sailor, uh, and um, and had it shipped down the, right on the spot. Gave the address, um, I think he gave him cash, and bought a laser and had it shipped to the Caribbean. And the kid, he had no. That's just the type of guy he was. It, it, Every minute, there was something going on in his brain that nobody could ever have predicted. It was phenomenal. I mean, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people in the sailing world. He's the only person ever who I thought any moment, he's just going to walk away. So I had to get, I had to get all my good questions in first, in first just in case. What did you learn from, from Dennis Connor? And I guess give us a glimpse of how he, how he ran those campaigns. Well, it was for for him. This is this had turned from a boat race. Uh, you know, his days of being uh, an America's Cup sailor, as he would put it, were behind him, and he was looking for a sailing team that could kind of uh, help create his vision. And it had turned into a funding contest for him. You know, again, like we're, we're talking about, I'm sure you included. He he didn't want to lose. He wanted to be successful at whatever. And and being successful meant funding a challenge that nobody said could be funded. So last minute, last second, get a single boat program on the starting line, surrounded by two boat programs in Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, he took it on as his funding challenge. And he was the king. I mean, I, he, there's, there's nobody who could walk up to somebody and turn him into a puddle right away. Like if, he, if Dennis wanted to... Uh, make you a believer, Dennis could make you a believer. Just at the same time, and I, you know, as the, as the campaigns went on, if he wanted to make sure you understood that you weren't competing or doing something in a way that he thought was right, whew, you know, be, look out. So he, he never held anything back. And that was the one thing I always appreciated from Dennis. He gave you his honest answer and his honest uh, evaluation of the situation and um, it wasn't a forceful you're, you're committing to my vision but it was you you better think twice if you're going to go in the other direction he, he was yeah incredible just incredible you did two cups with him it, those kiwi cups what are you what are your memories of, <laughs> of all of that uh, the first one was just it was it, it was so late um, you know Reichel Pugh designed a boat and Literally, there was no input from anybody. It was just like, you design a boat, you make a mast. Uh, by the way, you know, Dave Hirsch was our sail designer. Uh, Dave just designed a bunch of sails. And 
you know, they were down to four or five people uh, that we didn't have in the crew. And they're finally like, hey, Kenny, who, you, who do you want to bring? And, and we kind of considered ourselves the band of misfit toys. You know, it was, it was the people that a bunch of other programs, in, in a sense, didn't want. And man, were we good. by the end, we were so good. And Tom, you know, we weren't doing great in the first rounds. Peter Holmberg and, and uh, Peter Eisler and myself were in the afterguard. Um, and Tom came in and really kind of stabilized the thing. We called him our, our adult supervision. And, and he also fended off Dennis a little bit too, you know, if, if truth be told. He, he, made, he calmed Dennis down off to the side. And all of a sudden we started winning. And all of a sudden we started winning more. And before you know it, we're in the third round. We, we eliminated New York Yacht Club. And, you know, Dennis had some bad blood with New York Yacht Club over the years. It's been completely cleared up now. But um, all of a sudden New York Yacht Club is out. And this band of misfits is still in. And it was like this dream ride. And, and uh, there was one last day that our very last race, it was going to be, uh, it was us and Prada and, and Kayard, Francesco DeAngelis and Kayard and, and ourselves, two, two of us were going on to the next round. And uh, we were sailing against Don Riley, actually, and, and, and their team, and all we had to do is win. And I think if we won, we were in a playoff against Prada to face to face Kayard in, in the Challenger Finals. And it was the weirdest day ever, and we picked the wrong side on the first beat, and we, the first cross, and we ground and ground and ground, and we lost that race, and the dream just came to this crashing, crashing halt. But it was one of those campaigns that 24 hours later, it was like, man, did we accomplish a lot. It was really a cool campaign. No, I think the difference is, Surely that it was no expectations. And, and that it is so easy to be free and try crazy stuff. And um, there was no expectations. And it was really fun. The next one was different. Uh, Dennis was still crazy Dennis. And, you know, he, he, he hired us all. He hired the nucleus right back right away. But the next time, all of a sudden, there's New York Yacht Club affiliation. Uh, there's a little bit more money. Uh, we're a two-boat campaign. We sank a boat in training. It just seemed like nothing, nothing went right that next one. When the boat sank, you know, Dennis took me. He's like, hey, we got to go on a sponsor tour. We got to go try to raise some money. So you and I are hopping. This is at noon on some day. He said, the plane leaves at 3. And uh, I'm like, I don't have anything. He goes, so he takes me to his, to his clothes store, which is a big and large man's store. I mean, I'm walking around in dresses for the rest of for, for five days and he said okay the first place is we're going to Alabama I'm like going to Alabama okay this is weird and uh, he gets up he, he, he gets on his American Airlines flight and again not a word spoken uh, he sits down in first class in, in American Airlines and uh, one of the stewardesses just comes over with his drink and puts it in front of him no not even hello Mr. Connor nothing that's how often he went flying they just knew him and, and halfway there, he said, I got to get up and, and hit the head. And I looked down in front of me and there's two tickets to the Super Bowl, uh, to the Patriots game. I was an avid Patriots fan. So we're not going to Alabama. We're going to New Orleans first. And these next, he's, 
he, he determined that I thought he was crazy at one point. For some reason, he, he thought I was crazy. He thought I thought he was crazy and I was going to flee. So it was this two-story apartment building with an old grinder from way back named Kyle Smith. Dennis was downstairs. I was upstairs. He was, he was sure one night I was going to try to escape because I thought this whole thing was insanity. So he slept across the stairs on the top of the stairwell. I thought he was going to roll down the stairs halfway through the night. I was on a couch and there's Dennis Connor 15 feet away snoring away because he wasn't going to let me leave because he just got convinced at one stage I was going to try to flee because this so and sure enough the next four days were the weirdest four days of my life and, and but we but the Patriots won the Super Bowl so all was good and it was just a glimpse into his world it was just so it is so non-conventional that you learn to think outside the box every minute of the day there's no rules the, the rules are what you make and Dennis Connor was the king at figuring out how to, whatever rules there were, how to make them fit to his vision of where he wanted to go. Did you want to flee? <laughs> no, I was hooked at that stage. I was hooked. And then Tom shows up the next morning. So it's Kyle Smith, Tom Whitten, Tom, uh, Dennis Connor, and myself sitting in the end zone watching the Patriots kick the winning field goal with you know three seconds left. Adam Venateri kicks a winning field goal and no, I was hooked. I was in. Anything could happen at that stage. I was fully in. And, uh, and we flew around the country to meet up with his old buddies. And sure enough, he's raising money all over the place. And it was just every day was insanity. It was really something else. I mean, you're smiling when, you, when you're yeah. talking about it. it was a, a, I guess it was a crazy, mad period of your life. That ended terribly, unfortunately. I mean, that, 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 In what way? We, got, we just didn't live up to expectations. As good as we were in the first cup campaign, that's how badly it ended in the second cup campaign. Um, you know, it was a day and age, I always equate it to T Team New Zealand broke the model of, of the Dennis, in a way, the Dennis Connor model of putting a team together. Dennis you know, you choose a foil designer and you choose a hull designer and you choose a mast designer and you choose a sail designer. And in essence, that's how he, that's how he had success. And who, by the way, none of us ever called him out on it at the time. So I'd love to say in hindsight, we were saying, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong. But Team New Zealand put everybody in a room, including all those people, and they created this smorgasbord of, of ideas that that turned into very fast boats, and they turned and they went on to a lingi and did the same exact thing. We didn't, we weren't doing that. We didn't do that, and so, you know, our keel, our keel probably wasn't quite right for what we were doing. Turns out we put a, a standard Reichel pew keel on it right at the end of the campaign, essentially when we were eliminated, and, and the boat kind of lit up. Um, you know, our mast was heavy and and w didn't bend quite as much as we had liked. Um, you know, the, the crew was great, I, don't get me wrong, the crew was phenomenal, we had no excuses there, but still at the same time, everything that went right in the first one just seemed, you know, you sink your boat in practice with a brand new rudder, and I'm just like, you know, Vince Broom was trimming the main, and hey Vince, let's just see how this new rudder feels. I peel it off once and the stock breaks inside the boat and before you know it, there's a two and a half foot hole in the bottom of the boat and the thing was on the bottom in four minutes. Who, who phoned Dennis up? I, I did. Well, I had to borrow a phone because I went in the, it was the days of flip phones, so I, we all swam off the boat. 
actually, except for a few guys were smart enough to hop off the transom on the way through. But I, I ran forward, make sure Robbie Miles is down below and made sure nobody was down below as the skipper of the boat does. And then I remember doing a swan dive off the side and, uh, and I'm in the water swimming and the tender's coming at me and I pulled my flip phone out and I threw it at the tender and had to borrow a phone and, and called Dennis and said, we got a problem. And you know what he did? He made a he he cooked a cookout for the team that night. He's like, yeah, you know what? Things happen. We're going to try to make a positive out of this, and uh, yeah. So he, he cooked. He always cooked for the team. He got on the grill and cooked. Either that, or we'd show he'd show up with forty-two bags of McDonald's, and and uh, if we'd sit there and eat eat, eat cheeseburgers and and double you know you know double cheeseburgers. Like I said, the day you thought you'd seen weird, just wake up tomorrow. It was pretty cool. It was a cool time. That's hilarious. I mean, you were pretty young. I mean, you know that feeling. I can see you're thinking about it now. That feeling, you're a young guy, you're at the helm of a boat and an America's Cup campaign. I wonder now, you know, we're, and we will talk about you know, our involvement now in the Cup a bit later, but, you know, if, you, if you'd like to be involved, if you can sense you know, that feeling, even, even now? Oh, like it was yesterday. Are you, are you kidding? Um, you know, Ian Walker w was, uh, and Peter Harrison, th that was our only, you know, that was the, our elimination series against them, and we won that elimination series. And, and Peter Harrison and I, this past summer, at a super yacht regatta in Newport, um, were joking with each other. I said, yeah, you know, that was tough times. He goes, Yours wasn't, I was a little tougher than you, mate. You know, that's what he said. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's hard because you pour, we were on a panel tonight with Shannon Falcone and, and uh, Shabby Fernandez talking about the, the modern America's Cup. And, you know, Shannon says it's a good week if they get three days of sailing. In. And of those three days on these new boats, and of those three days, they don't get a lot of hours during the day. And, my God, if, we, if, if you weren't sailing seven days a week, you felt like you were letting the team down. You know? So we had to force ourselves to take Sunday off. A, because our families were about to kill us. And B, because you thought there was something to learn. There was something to gain from it. So it's such a different, such a different world now. It really is. Do you wish you were still involved? Still getting on oh, the wheel. You know what? I came to peace after the... I, I really enjoyed the Volvos. I have to admit that um, the second one was... The first one... It's, well, maybe it's a pattern. I never thought of it this way. The first Volvo, we were... We had no expectations and, um, you know, and were very successful. Second overall and very successful. We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about... We're going to talk about the but Volvo. Maybe, but but I it's just... a pattern, though. Maybe my first... Maybe my, <laughs> by the time I get to the second campaign, it's not as good. I don't know. I don't know. You need to be fresh. I just guess, you know, because you know that feeling of, of leading your team. I mean, you're the guy driving the boat in the America's Cup, the biggest stage of all, really. When you, when you look now, do you think, God, I'd love to be. I'd love yeah, to have get, that but feeling remember, again. I get to do that. I get to do that every day at work. I, I really do. We're in a position, because North Sales is such a kind of global opinion leader. I, I keep using the phrase opinion leader. It's a, North Sales is a global marine opinion leader. And we get to, I still get to do that every day. I, I think if the day I, I, I'm told or feel that it's, come, it's slowing down or coming to an end is the day that I, I'm plenty happy with stepping away. But I get to still uh, help, help uh, 
with the help of a lot of great people, run a great team. And it's the same. Tom was right. By going out and by kicking me out of the nest all the time to go run programs, this is just a big sailing program. North Sales is just a big sailing program. At least I, I tend to treat it that way, and maybe that's how it keeps me sane when you've got 2,000 employees. You know, maybe it keeps you sane. If you start thinking the magnitude of the whole thing, maybe you get a little nervous. But this is just a big sailing campaign. That's a great outlook from the man running one of the biggest companies in our sport. What an insightful chat. I love the stories from his time with Dennis Connor. We're not done with Kenny though. As promised, we've a two-part podcast this month. So look out for Kenny Reed part two in a couple of weeks. He gives us lots of insight from behind the scenes of his two big Volvo Ocean Race campaigns and plenty of chat about his role conceiving and then skippering the giant Supermaxi Comanche. It's really not to be missed. Please also let me know what you think about the podcast. I'm easy to find at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter or just me on Facebook. And please do remember to like and review on whatever platform you're joining us on. As ever, the podcast is produced by Tim at Vertical Film. So a huge thank you to him for all his hard work and his unwavering patience. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water. Sail safe, everyone. Castle One standing by. Out.